The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Jill Gonzalez. She's an analyst and personal spokesperson for WalletHub, which we're going to be talking about WalletHub and their charity calculator with nearly a third of all annual giving, which has taken place in December. Uh, and the U.S. Uh, ranking second overall in this year's World Giving Index, the personal finance website WalletHub conducted an in-depth analysis of 2015's most and least charitable states. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jill. Thanks so much for having me. Great to have you. Okay, so the 2015's most and least charitable states, um, why do we need to know that? And who was the study conducted for? Well, I think it was conducted for everyone in America. I mean, we just passed the holiday season, obviously, a huge time for charity. A lot of people also trying to get it in before the year was over for tax purposes. Um, But now looking forward, I think it's nice to know which states actually took action there the most and which, of course, could use some improvement. Right. So we want to know, who are the most and the least charitable states? And some of them, as I was reading these over, I mean, are big surprises. When we talk about charity, though, I think maybe we should define it because charity uh, can be either in goods and services or it can be in terms of monies. Uh, so that's very different ways to giving to charity. And I imagine in looking some of these states over, some are better at giving more monies, some of these states, and others give more of time. And Americans in general are the most charitable people in the second most charitable people in the world. That's right. Who's the first? Second most charitable. Um, So hopefully next year we can get to number one there. but I think that you're absolutely right. You know, there's, there's different ways to define this, and we try to really have all of them in this for a really complete picture. Number one, by the way, was Myanmar in terms of charity. Um, Ma- but we were at least the best in North America. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely the right. So in terms of metrics, I was just, you know, interesting you should say that because I was just there, and to be honest, that's shocking that that would be... Do they have, in terms of money or time or goods or what? Everything. So this is giving as a whole. Uh, giving we look, as a whole, okay. Yeah, and this is actually the CAF. It's their World Giving Index. Um, so that's something that we also looked into. CAF is the Charities Aid Foundation, but they looked at three different things, helping a stranger, donating money, and volunteering time. So Myanmar was number one, U.S. number two, New Zealand three, Canada four, and Australia five. 
I mean, those I would expect. I mean, that doesn't surprise me as much, I guess. Um, but the United States, okay, so we give, how much monies do we give? Do we have the overall calculations, like for this year, for 20, or for last year, for 2015? How much money did we give? And are we taught, yeah. We don't have 2015 numbers yet, but we do have 2014 numbers. Americans gave over $358 billion, and 72% of that came directly from individuals. So not huge companies or corporations making these donations, but just individuals themselves. And when we're talking about individuals giving, I guess this is also surprising because that's obviously, yeah, when you say $350 billion, I think of like corporations, not individuals. And the average income, I think that's on your, um, it's on your website, on your charity calculator, says that the average American, the medium income is $30,000 a year. That's right. We're very generous. <laughs> very generous. Yeah, about more than 95% of households donated to charities. The annual that they contributed was just under $3,000, so almost 10% of their income. Oh, 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 you know, when I'm reading the statistics, I'm wondering where does our spirit of charity come from? Because to be giving 10% of your income, especially in this day, in these particular times when, uh, uh, you know, um, things are rough for a lot of people, and particularly the middle class, we're still giving our monies away. We're still helping people, which obviously is a good thing. Um, what about the volunteer rate? Because that's different, obviously, than giving money. So, and what are the statistics on that? Is it broken down into how we volunteer or who we volunteer, what we volunteer for? The volunteer rate is just the base volunteer rate here. We also looked into the number of public charities per capita, and that is, you know, defined as everything like churches, hospitals, medical research organizations, uh, colleges, universities. So it's not going to be really broken down here. Jill, what about, now we're talking about giving monies and time and goods and services here in the United States as Americans. Now, what about giving, because now with the Internet, we're also giving overseas, around the world, globally, disasters happen, you know, you can, you can just go online and give your money away, for instance. How does that fit into the picture? Yeah, so uh, other than the volunteer rate, other than the number of public charities, we also just looked at the percentage of the population who has donated some of their income, and that, of course, applies to charities around the world. Uh, the people who have claimed to donate money to charity, that's more of a, you know, maybe you're passing by a Red Cross bin or something like that, um, you know, that you can't really put on your taxes, but, you know, still definitely counts as a charitable act. We looked into that as well. Um, so definitely, you know, any money that you are giving to charity or any time, is, that's something that we looked into here. And that's you know, overseas people will always say, well, you give your money away because it's it's a, it's a good incentive. It's a ta- you know it's a, an incentive to um, uh, tax incentive. You get a break on your taxes. Um, and you know, uh, do, do you think that's the only reason that people give? Because it seems to me, yes, that is an incentive. But there are other reasons. Um, and you know, s- since you do all this research, um, do you think that it's mainly just as a tax incentive, or there are other reasons why we as Americans give? Absolutely not. I mean, we looked at the money part of this in two ways. The people who donated money to charity as a percentage of taxpayers who donated money and then the percentage of the population who claim to have donated money, which was a Gallup poll taken. And again, that's 
you know, nothing that you can really cross off of your taxes or get incentivized for, that's more like, you know, throwing a couple of dollars to, you know, one of these uh, kind of neighborhood bins or anything maybe in church that you're giving to as something comes around. So, again, we looked at this in two different ways, and the people who have claimed to donated money in the latter there actually outweigh those who put it down on their taxes. What about those, because, uh, you know, we're talking about who gives and why they give, but let's, let's talk about who doesn't give and why they don't give, because <laughs> that's interesting, too. Okay, you've got the least charitable states. Who is the least, I don't know if you mentioned that before, but who is the least, char- what is the least charitable state? Well, this list was kind of surprising. Here in the bottom five, you kind of have a wide variety of states. Kentucky is number 46. 50 is the worst. 47, Arizona. Then California, Louisiana, and Rhode Island coming in as the least charitable. Any reasons? Can we go through this? Why do you think that's true? I mean, I'm surprised. California is the least? One of them, yes. Yeah, um, and this is again looking at multiple things: the volunteer rate, the percentage of people who have donated income or time. Um, so I think that there's a lot of things going on here. I don't think you can pinpoint necessarily one reason. Uh, I was most surprised by Kentucky and Louisiana. A lot of times, people think Bible Belt and they think of charity, and that's clearly not necessarily the case in every state. Yeah, Kentucky, Louisiana, those are the Bible Belt. Those are the least uh, charitable states. But you also uh, have Rhode Island? Why Rhode Island? Well, I mean, just in terms of sheer numbers, uh, everything from the volunteer rate to the percentage of people who donated, even, you know, going out there and donating time if they don't have the money, the, lump, the numbers were just very low in Rhode Island. Now, let's talk, okay, that's, we're talking about, the, the volunteer rate, and you've got some of these key stats that you came up with. Um, interesting, the percentage of the population who claim to have donated time, you say claim to have donated time in New Hampshire, because New Hampshire's in the news right now, is two times higher than in Kentucky. Is that a surprise? I was a little bit surprised by that again, um, just because of the location here. A lot of times more in northeastern states, uh, seem to not have as much time to be donating to charity or donating their time even. Um, so I, and a lot of these kind of are different. As you can see, uh, the lowest percentage of people who donated income were in New Hampshire, and that's just looking at taxpayer money, four times less than a place like Utah. Utah, by the way, was number one overall in terms of being charitable. Utah, number one. Okay, does that surprise me? Or did that surprise you? It does not. I think there's a lot of faith-based giving going on in Utah. The volunteer rate was far and away the highest of any other state. Okay, when you talk about faith-based giving, that's interesting because do you find that people in these different states tend to give to one type of organization, say like Utah, faith-based state, or do some, and I don't know if you have these statistics, or do some states give more overall to a more diverse group of charitable organizations? Yeah, well, as we said before, we really lumped in most things here. Public charities is going to include churches, hospitals, medical research organizations. So we don't have that broken down by state. Well, that could be the next study. It could, um, yeah. What about, all, okay, of the, okay. all of the uh, statistics here come from the census, the Corporation for National and Community Service, 
Education Commission of the States, National Center for Charitable Statistics, the IRS. So whatever we can get, that's what we use. Jill, let's go on your web. We can go to your website, or I went to your website, the Wallet Hub website, and one they you have what you call the charity calculator, which I found very interesting. Let's talk about that. What is the charity calculator, and how is we as consumers? How can we use it? So the charity calculator will help you figure out if you should be donating time or money to a charity of your choice. For instance, maybe if you spent an extra hour working per week, you know, what could you then donate in terms of money and what would that get you, whether it would get you, you know, maybe four laptops for students in need or 3,500 meals for people who are going hungry, or is it more worth it to be donating your time? So it kind of helps you if you're wondering what is more lucrative to these charities, really helps you figure out and kind of compare what your money or what your time is worth. Yeah, because, and the calculator is great because here you have, well, you can put in uh, annual income, 30000 40000 but whatever it is, right, and volunteer hours per week. It, and it really, like you say, it's really specific, like how many meals you get for children facing hunger in America or how many kids you can get vaccinated or, as you say, how many laptops can you buy. So it's very specific, Um you, and I assume that a lot of people would use this, do you, you know, this, this calculator. Um, I don't know how you calculate how many people are able to, to utilize this, but uh, this is a really good idea to, for people or for consumers. How do you want to spend your money wisely or how do you want to volunteer and what it can do? Because you don't always know what it can do. That's the other thing. How do you analyze that? That's difficult. Uh, you know, there are so many places, too. I know in, in New York, for instance, where I am, uh, there are obviously so many organizations, and I'll say, well, you know, there are certain ones, obviously, that I'm interested in, but how do I actually know what my $1,000 or my $500 is going to do, and where is it going to go? So That's right, and I think that's kind of half the battle for a lot of people. There are so many causes a lot of people, time is money, and you don't often have that much on your hands extra to give. Uh, so people don't always know who to give to or how to give to, how to best allocate their limited resource to really have the most impact here. So that's why we developed this calculator, and I think a lot of people do find it useful. The other thing here when deciding where to give to, if you are deciding on one specific charity, maybe you switch it up every year, maybe this is one that you really want to dedicate a portion of your life to, it's good to research them and to figure out how much of every dollar actually goes to the people you're helping instead of, you know, marketing or advertising needs. Yeah, I mean, I think that's critical, and I don't think, and I think it's just people just maybe just beginning to take a look at that, like where does this money actually go? And some of these organizations, you know, like you're saying, if you actually look, and I'm not going to mention, mention them by name necessarily, but you'll find that, you know, only 20% of all the money goes to the people that you actually think you're donating to and the rest goes to running the, the, the business of, of doling, of giving out the money or where it goes to the organization. And uh, some of that stuff can be really shocking, I would say. So it's it really, I guess, behooves one to, to, be, to, to get those statistics as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And nonprofits really do have to list them and have to put those numbers forth 
but they don't necessarily have to be completely transparent about it. So you, you might have to do some digging, um, and I think every cause is a good cause, but some organizations go about their work a little bit more efficiently than others. So doing some research into that, too, I think is going to make you feel better about giving in the first place. Jill, when you say they don't have to be as transparent, what do you mean? Like there are ways in which they can, I don't want to use the word cover-up, but they don't really have to be forthcoming about how they spend their monies? Well, yeah, at the end of the day, it's, it's a business. So, you know, think about your favorite business and maybe if you're applying for a credit card, where the rates are going to be or where the, uh, the fine print might be, you know, at the very end of whatever package you're looking at. The same might be for some of these companies, um, you know, that maybe only 10% of what you give actually goes to people in need. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be the first thing they list on their homepage. I find that people give monies, um, you know, this can be sort of unfortunate maybe, or, uh, you know, like if, if you, you get a, a serious illness, cancer, heart disease, or someone in your family that you're close to does, and then you begin, one begins to, you know, give to that particular charitable organization. It seems to me that's one of, having, uh, you know, a very personal interest in a charitable organization is another reason for giving monies to it, or at least that's been my experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's probably one of the most common reasons that people get involved with charitable giving is because it hits close to home. Um, and I think that's obviously a good reason to be giving to an organization. What about, you know, I'm interested in how, you know, as a social worker, obviously, how, how you personally, how does this affect you? I mean, you work for this organization, you have all this information, like in terms of your own um, perspective and like, and how do you give, or you know, reasons for your personal giving, um, and has that changed since like you've been working for Wallet Hub? Well, it's interesting. I'm in D.C. now, so that is not a state, as we all know. It's not one of the places on this list. But I'm originally from New Jersey, which ranked 42nd in the bottom 10 here. Um, and it's interesting, you know, just coming kind of from the hustle and bustle of the Northeast, people don't really think about charity. It's definitely not the first thing on a lot of people's minds, I think. Uh, And you see places like New York, Pennsylvania, down here in the bottom 10 as well. Rhode Island, we said, was number 50. I think as much as it can be a regional thing, I look at the top of the list where Maryland you have right up there, um, some other cities in the north, Connecticut, very high on the list. Uh, So it's interesting to see is this a regional thing? Is it not? Was it once, you know, more of a you think Bible Belt, you think charity? Uh, but now, you know, that I'm still kind of in the hustle and bustle, I think it's nice to find ways, especially to be giving your time. Um, you know, whether it's a weekend, whether there's some late night events that you can go to to really be helping out your community because we see a lot of it here in the nation's capital. And I think that was most surprising to me once I got here. I think one of the things and one of the reasons why people give, I think families have sort of a spirit of giving, and they teach their children, I think, at a very young age. And I know there are a lot of organizations now are helping, are, are kind of helping families to um, show their children how they, too, can be charitable, even starting when you're in elementary school. And then that, of course, as they grow up, they become more charitable adults. But I think I see that kind of as a, as a, as a push. I guess 
not in New Jersey, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that we did look at here, and we had eight metrics in all, one of them was a community service requirement for high school graduation. And less than half of the states even have that. So that also was very interesting to kind of look at. Why wouldn't all the states kind of build that into their high school curriculums? Because like you said, I really think starting at a younger age instills that value in you for the rest of, the li- for the rest of your life. So you're saying that these community service, that, that, that it really seems like it's probably on the decline. I, I mean, I know when I was growing up and even when my kids were there in their early 30s, it was like, you know, community service was a big thing. It was even a great thing to have on your resume if you did community service. So maybe even there weren't so many altruistic reasons for doing community service, even though it got done and the students did it, but it was also something that looked good for getting into college. But you're saying that uh, they're not, that that's, something that sort of waned, I guess, over the past, what, few years? I don't think so. I don't, I mean, I think community service was always encouraged in high schools. We're talking about a specific state-mandated requirement for high school graduation. But I think it's still encouraged nationwide. Uh, I don't think that these requirements have been dropped. If anything, I think more requirements are being added. But there's still a lot more you know, states to go here if we're talking about maybe 22 states that actually have this as a requirement for their high school graduates. Now you're talking about New Jersey, and we're, you know, obviously right beside you here in New York. And New York, we're not too charitable either. Number 45 in terms of least charitable states. Um, I find that shocking. I, uh, that, I mean, we're a very diverse state. It, it seems to me, at least, that um, it feels like we're charitable, um, but I guess we're not. Yeah, I mean, just looking at a volunteer rate alone, New York had the second worst, three times worse than a place like Utah, Wisconsin, Kansas. Um, so in terms of volunteering, I think that's probably where New York could use the most work. In, time, in terms of donating money and, you know, getting incentivized on that through your taxes, that's where New York does okay, uh, but still not the best of the best here. So you really do have to break it down into all those the, the categories that you've mentioned because the state may be really pretty good in terms of give, donating monies but not time. Exactly. I think it's important to look at this holistically here because charity can be defined in many different ways, as we touched on in the beginning of the program. All right. So uh, any other surprises for you? I mean, we've been talking about some of them, some of them that I found surprising, but anything that stood out for you that you thought, wow, this is like really something that I didn't expect or that we didn't expect while we were doing this analysis at uh, WalletHub? Well, we talked about how kind of varied the bottom five was. Top five is pretty much the same. We said number one was Utah. Number two goes all the way down to Maryland. Then Idaho, Oregon, and South Dakota are the top five. And then after that, Tennessee, Georgia, Washington. So, again, kind of all across the country here, there is no set rhyme or reason to regional charities or anything like that. So I think that was the most surprising for us. We really did expect to see some regional ties here, and that's just not the case anymore. Jill, in looking at this, I'm thinking, like, if you look at the states with the most population, those were the least charitable states, Pennsylvania, New York, California, and the ones that have you know, I don't know exactly the population of any of these states, but I mean, like, Utah, Idaho, 
Oregon, South Dakota, those are some of the least populated states. Yes and no here. So Maryland, number two, pretty populated. Rhode Island, number 50, definitely not the most populous. So I think, again, there's no ties to population either. So this uh, uh, interesting. I mean, it's just this. Obviously, I mean, w- with all the statistics you've gathered, I mean, you really have to take a look at this and uh, do who else, you know. This is for obviously for the consumer. Um, this this research, and but who else is going to benefit from the research on on uh, most and least charitable states? Well, if this is something that local officials want to be taking a look at or, you know, any kind of state government, I think obviously it would benefit them. Uh, but we are a consumer-geared site, so hopefully this is making the most sense and the most useful for consumers out there. Well, very interesting information, uh, great study. Uh, our, uh, let's talk about uh, the website that we can go to because there's a lot more to talk about than what we've, you know, had the opportunity this past half hour. But if you want to go to the Charity Calculator, what do you do? Just go to your website and then go to CharityCalculator.com or? Yes, go to WalletHub.com and click on or search for the Charity Calculator. Okay. I I suggest that my listeners do that because it's uh, very interesting, very helpful. And uh, now we've got a whole new year to decide where we want to give our monies or our time or our goods to. Um, and then you can click on 2015's Most and Least Charitable States. Uh, Jill, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Of course. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. That's Jill Gonzalez. She is an analyst and a spokesperson for Wallet Hub, and uh, we've been talking about the 2015's Most and Least Charitable States and uh, also discussing Wallet Hub's Charity Calculator. We're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Dr. Gustavo Carlo. Uh, he is a, the research director for the Center for Family Policy. He's a professor at the University of uh, Missouri. Um, and he and his research partner have done a study on the longitudinal associations between discrimination, depressive symptoms, and pro-social behaviors in U- United States Latino recent immigrant adolescents. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Carlo. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. I'm pleased to be here. Great to have you here. Okay, now let, let's talk about this study, discrimination and Latino youth. Um, so you've conducted this study, research study. Uh, what was the study about and why did you do, why you're interested in this in the first place? Why is it important to you and to us? Sure. Um, well, um, you know, I've always been interested in understanding uh, sort of positive social development in ethnic minority um, groups and particular adolescents who I feel, you know, sort of suffer from stigma um, oftentimes as being sort of, you know, uh, problem kids and a problem age period and particularly for ethnic minority um, adolescents. Um, and Latinos, of course, are um, the largest um, uh, um, ethnic minority group in the U.S., and um, it's of great interest, I think, to us as a society to understand what are some of the factors that are negatively affecting Latino immigrant youth, as well as what are some of the factors that may actually um, help uh, immigrant Latino youth. And so that's where my so, interest Dr. Carlos, so what are we talking from. about in terms of numbers? Because I think it is important, and of course it's timely because mm-hmm. we have so many, or potentially many, new immigrant families coming to the United right. States. So the impact of discrimination on mm-hmm. them and on their children is going to, it really has an effect on us as yeah. a country. So exactly. This is, it, yeah. Yeah, it's exactly um, true. I so, mean, well, right your now Latinos study, are... Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. So Latinos right now make up about 17% of the U.S. population. And um, as we know, even though in recent months there have been reports that uh, the net immigration has actually sort of somewhat um, stabilized and even slightly decreased, um, Latinos in general are still um, the fastest growing uh, population in the U.S. Um, and there's, you know, whereas in Previous decades, Latinos were mostly concentrated on the coast, on the East Coast, the West Coast, and the Southwest. We know from looking at national maps that uh, Latinos have spread out throughout basically the whole United States, including this part of the U.S., um, the Midwest, and the Northern Great Plains. Um, So they're definitely... um, everywhere, and um, they're probably even undercounted because, of course, we also have many of them that are undocumented. All right, so that's why, obviously, the study is important because mm-hmm. it's how we raise our youth and, and how discrimination negatively, obviously, affects our Latino youth mm-hmm. and um, probably can be generalized to a lot of, as I said you know, earlier, to a lot of other populations of, of, of immigrants. Um, or refugees. Um, mm-hmm. So these are groups that 
you would consider marginalized, and, yes. and, and so the concern is how they perceive it, discrimination and the effect on them and mm-hmm. their behaviors. Well, let's talk to us specifically. What affects, you know, I know you've, um, depression is one of them specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, antisocial behavior may be a sure. part of that. So what sure. are the, the repercussions of discrimination with, with, with these youth? And what yeah. kind of discrimination do they perceive? Yeah. Yeah. So um, in this study, we did focus on depression as one of those negative outcomes. Um, and we also looked at um, pro-social behaviors, which refer to, you know, actions that people do that to benefit other people. You know, these are things that most of us desire um, to see from our kids and to see from other people. And it really forms the basis for um, a successful cooperative society. Um, <clears throat> so discrimination. Um, so let's talk because for those of us who aren't in academia or researchers, sure. when you say pro-social, these are desired mm-hmm. behaviors. What are those desired ha- behaviors? What do we want to see in our in, in our children and or in our youth? Sure. So um, so we're really talking about kind behaviors. We're talking about generosity. We're talking about what the previous um, uh, person that you interviewed talked about, volunteering, uh, being nice to other people. Um, These are just, you know, basic fundamental human um, traits that we value and we desire. Um, You know, we want people to treat each other with respect and uh, to be nice to each other and uh, to share to donate um, our resources. Um, so, and these are things that also make up what we often consider to be the core aspects of uh, a good moral character, a uh, person with good moral standards. Um, and so these are important because, as we know, um, uh, these are the kinds of behaviors that help us to, um, you know, develop new positive relationships with other people. Uh, these are aspects that help to um, maintain good quality relationships with other people. Um, and so when you have a group of um, adolescents that are uh, experiencing or perceiving uh, discrimination and uh, unfair treatment uh, from others, um, that can have... Um, uh, negative consequences in terms of how they end up interacting with other people, and um, so it could it could lead to psychological um, mal uh, uh, maladaptations like depressive symptoms, but it can also lead to um, less prosocial behaviors towards others, and less less of those sort of um, kinds of interactions that might ultimately lead, lead to social isolation and marginalization. Mm-hmm. Which could have serious consequences, I guess, for obviously for families, for the individual, but also society. I mean, eventually, and I'm not saying you found this in the research, but mm-hmm. I mean, it could link it, link it to some of these, these horrific um, situations that we've mm-hmm. had where, you know, young people, be, you know, killing other people. I mean, mm-hmm. and, I mean that's the extreme, but... Mm-hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. It would seem to me that there's some kind of a there can be some kind of connection or correlation, perhaps. Sure, Who knows? Sure. But well, um, and we have and we have found uh, in other research we we know that prosocial behaviors are directly related to 
uh, antisocial behaviors in a negative manner. So that people who are, you know, kids that are more pro-social, for example, tend to be less antisocial, less aggressive, less delinquent. Um, they tend to use less um, subs- substances, uh, substance use. Um, so absolutely true. Um, these these kinds of behaviors are can have uh, detrimental consequences for our societies, for our communities. Um, as it stands, you know, we know that there are difficulties sort of crossing those borders in terms of um, having in individuals from different ethnic racial groups interact with other groups um, to work cooperatively and together to sort of try to solve some of the social challenges that we face. Now, in terms of definitions, what about um, discrimination? What do we mean or what did you mean in your study by discrimination? Because you mentioned perceived discrimination, which to me sounds like, like maybe a youth or a young person may feel like they're being discriminated against. Perhaps they're not, but mm-hmm. if they perceive that they are, then that has, you know, it, it may have the same implications as if they were actually being discriminated against. So, yeah, okay, yes. so what do we mean by discrimination, perceived yeah. discrimination? Um, so in our study, um, we, uh, this was, um, we used um, surveys um, and we asked several questions using, you know, st- sort of, standardized scientific instruments. Um, and the questions on discrimination focused on, there were items such as, you know, um, how often do you feel um, that you are treated unfairly by teachers or others? Um, unfair treatment from others due to your ethnic background. Um, how much do you feel like you're not wanted in, uh, quote, unquote, American society? Uh, so that there were those kinds of items, um, really, as you said, really getting at their perceptions, their overall perceptions of um, um, discriminati- discriminative experiences um, in their own communities uh, by others that they're surrounded by, teachers um, and peers um, and others. So. so, okay, now you have this study consisted of what, 302? Yes, 302 um, uh, recent immigrants. immigrants. The study was conducted in uh, Miami and in Los Angeles. Uh, So we had uh, Cuban-Americans as well as Mexican-Americans. They were about 14 and a half years of age. Um, And to be immigrants, to to be considered recent immigrants, uh, they had to have um, been in the U.S. no no longer than five years. so no longer than five years means that this the impact of this the being this feeling discriminated against well first of all it had an impact on on their pro social behavior so mm-hmm. you can assume that if it's even they're discriminated for even a longer period of time it's only going to get worse absolutely um, you know, I have a question um, dr. Carlo what's the difference between immigrants and refugees mm. Well, um, you know, um, refugees are a subclass of immigrants. So immigrants is a, really an a umbrella term. And so people can immigrate to the U.S. for many, many different reasons. And, and refugees, um, usually, you know, there's that sort of more of a legal status. Um, you know, it could be political refugee um, 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 
for example. So, um, so in this study, we didn't look at the specific reasons for their immigration. Um, um, we weren't able to really get at that. But, um, but yes, refugees are a class of immigrants. And so yeah, I... Because I'm thinking we, if you're just studying, if you are studying, if one is studying and, you know, refugees are... It's mm-hmm. a big... Obviously, it's, it's, it's a big... Um, it's happening right now in our country. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a big issue. Yes. So uh, refugees, I, I sort of had... I thought that refugees were people who were, say, forced to leave their country. Maybe mm. they didn't want to leave, but they were right. forced to leave right. for political right. reasons. Sure. And so that they would, they would have maybe a different, well, obviously a different reason for being here rather than, mm-hmm. say, immigrants who just, mm-hmm. you know, for other, weren't right. being forced to leave their countries. So they would right. have a different mindset, I guess, than a refugee. Yeah. That's, you know. Yeah, I, I do think that that is important to consider. I mean, um, I'm, you know, as you sort of alluded to earlier, um, our findings may, may generalize to many different kinds of immigrant groups, um, but of course we would need to conduct that research to, to, to be sure. Um, however, as you also alluded to, um, the fact that these um, adolescents, um, which have been here no more than five years, are already experiencing longitudinal consequences of these discriminatory experiences, um, you know, doesn't bode well. I mean, um, as we know that, you know, from the stress literature, for example, that, you know, these sort of stressful experiences can accumulate over time and um, can have even more serious consequences. Yeah, as, you know, um, so what do we do? I mean, let's say, Mm. you know, we we take a look at your study and um, it does seem kind of it is depressing, and we're talking about huge numbers, as you mentioned, the statistics, uh, numbers of people. So, like, what can we do? Uh, I mean, I'm probably healthcare professionals. You're a psychologist, mm-hmm. uh, mental health services, Absolutely. the schools. I mean, you know, when mm-hmm. we have this information, and as such as from your study, it seems to me we have to do something about it, or we should, sure. first of all, we have to be aware, which yeah. the study makes us aware, but then what do we do? How do we, you know, change this in terms mm-hmm. of their behaviors and, and helping these kids so that they don't wind up in some catastrophic event? Right. Well, I, I think you're absolutely right. We all have an investment in trying to um, help uh, these kids transition into our communities. Um, the study, you know, really... Um, does give us some ideas. Um, for example, I mean, clearly we there are things that I think we can do as a society to try to reduce discrimination. I mean, the discrimination, there are different sources of discrimi- discrimination. Uh, some of it is institutionalized. Um, so we could, you know, change our, this, for example, our schools um, in ways that might help to reduce the um, possibilities of discriminatory behaviors, um, you know, increase the monitoring and, uh, and maybe, you know, um, increase, uh, develop programs that would help these adolescents have a venue for sort of reporting these kinds of experiences if they're 
if they're you know experiencing these things. So in other words, a place to go to. I'm thinking about the LBGT yeah. community where they're now in schools, you know, and, and you know, they, you know, there'd, there'd be a rainbow sticker on the, the door of a teacher who, mm-hmm. if you needed to come and talk about yeah. being bullied, you could yeah. go to that person. So the kids yeah. have to know where, they have to have a place to go, right, if yes, they're experiencing this. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you I find, Doctor, so. that like, okay, these, you said they've only been in um, the country up mm-hmm. at five years or mm-hmm. less. Yeah. Um, like the ability to speak English, how did that impact, like language, like if the kids are able to um, uh, yeah, speak yeah. English, yeah. Yeah, well, that that is actually uh, one possible source of discrimination. I mean, this, um, um, Latino kids could experience discrimination based on their, um, you know, if they have difficulties uh, with English fluency or even as something as simple as you know if they have a heavy accent um you know as we know you know other kids can be mean and uh yes. sometimes you know they can they can uh, choose to focus on that and make that and and that becomes the basis for uh discriminating and harassing or bullying or teasing or scorning um latino kids so Absolutely. Language can play a very important role in this. So it's important for us to make sure that these kids have access to good, uh, access to being able to learn the language. Sure, um, sure, yeah. sure, sure. And now, are we talking about, what are we talking about in terms of socioeconomic groups? I mean, how does that play out? Well, you know, that's, uh, that's one of the great um, um, sort of challenges and debates in our in academia is that sometimes we've um, ha- we find differences between ethnic racial groups um, and there are questions as to whether the findings are really due to the ethnicity or the race of of the individuals or whether they're really due to um, uh, social economic status or poverty because as we know that Unfortunately, there's a strong correlation between ethnic minorities, racial minority status, and and um, SES, um, and uh, you know many ethnic racial minority groups are living in poverty. So, um, to disentangle those effects has always been a great challenge in academia. Um, but you know, one of the exciting sort of advances I think in recent years is that. Um, you know, psychologists, researchers are really trying to look at what are those variables that normally would um, be associated with both SES and racial ethnic minority status. And discrimination is one of those variables. So we're sort of cutting to the chase by examining directly uh, what are the really underlying processes that are associated with social economic status that actually may be playing an important role in influencing these kids' uh, development. So are you saying, in layman's terms, i got to put you... Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) ...that that, uh, you've sort of been able to rule out the difference in... Well, at least we can, yes, we can minimize the possibilities that the effects are due to um, socioeconomic status. And we did control for socioeconomic status in our study as well. Um, So even over and above socioeconomic status, um, these findings held up. 
But maybe that takes us to the second step in terms of what we do about it. If you have a family that perhaps is has a you know a middle class family, let's say, mm-hmm. um, and even if the the the, uh, the youth are experiencing some of the you know discrimination, the middle class family has more resources to yes. help their children to give them to get English, you know, to get a tutor, to get English speaking lessons, right. to do uh, to go to a, a counselor. So, yes. um, absolutely. You're yeah. right. I mean, that, that can have important implications for intervention and treatment, absolutely. Yeah. So, all right. So now what's been the response? So what are you going to do? You know, we only have a, a few minutes left, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've talked about, I guess, some of, obviously, the, the significance of the study. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you go from here? Um, well, um, this is a series of studies that our research team has been conducting over the past decade or so. Um, we just completed a, a study uh, funded by the National Science Foundation of Latino families in Nebraska, and we have a sample of about 300 families, um, mothers and their adolescent um, children, um, and we're really testing sort of more comprehensive models, looking at other sort of indices of adjustment and maladjustment. So we're looking at anxiety, we're looking at substance use, we're looking at delinquency. But again, we're also trying to focus on what are some of the sort of indicators of well-being and, um, and, and positive social development, like pro-social behaviors. Um, and, and, I, and I'd like to sort of sort of stick in here, you know, when we were talking about possible future directions for interventions, I mean, I think, you know, some of the things that we talked about, like, you know, restructuring our our schools and providing services for student Latino students is one way, but another approach, as you well know, being a social worker, is um, developing prevention programs and intervention programs. And this really takes us back to one of the other variables in our study, which is the pro-social behaviors. And, you know, if we can find ways to um, foster uh, pro-social behaviors in our kids earlier in life, it turns out that that actually leads to less um, problem behaviors later on, including um, less depressive symptoms, less anxiety, less substance use, less antisocial behaviors. Um, so I guess my what I wanted to sort of put in here is, and propose is that we, we ought to think about these things sort of comprehensively, not only in terms of treatment programs um, that would sort of uh, directly address the problems and the situations that we're facing, but also in the long, in the long run, you know, we ought to think about uh, prevention intervention programs, early prevention intervention programs, things that might actually help to reduce the likelihood of these kinds of things um, even occurring. Yeah, do it before it happens. Uh, and obviously, I think that's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. I just, you know, we got two minutes left exactly. Sure. So I just want to. It would seem to me also just as just as kind of a comment because I'm in New York City, and sure. uh, you mentioned Nebraska doing this study. Mm-hmm. It would seem to me that if you're in a mm-hmm. community, and this may not be true, and we, you don't even have time to answer it, but mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it, uh, if you're in a in a community where there are not as many people like yourself, it makes yes. it more difficult to fit in. I mean, I went. We went to. Uh, I went to see. Lion King, 
King at, in, on Broadway last night, and I was surrounded. Everybody was Latino, and so mm-hmm. I, I, everybody was speaking Spanish. Yes. And yeah. I was sort of the odd man out. Yeah. So, I mean, if you are yeah. in a community, it would seem to me that that would kind of make it um, have a, a, a easier, I guess, I would say, yeah. maybe to. But, I mean, that's a whole other yeah, question. Yeah, I know. But I, I, I agree. That's a comment. Um, yeah. But no, I, um, I think that's absolutely true. You know, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Well, there you and, go. Yeah, and <laughs> um, and I'm Puerto Rican, um, so it was much easier for me to to grow up in that community. Um, I've lived in Nebraska and now in Missouri for the past over 20 years, um, and it, these communities are very different, very very different. And yeah, so it you, does make a difference in it, terms it does of actually make a your environment and where you live. It has Absolutely. been a pleasure talking to you. I have a lot more questions. Can't do it today, but sure. uh, Dr. Gustavo Carlo, yes. um, director of Center for Family Policy, uh, research director. Um, and we've been talking about his study, the association between discrimination, depressive symptoms, and pro-social behaviors in U.S. Latino uh, recent immigrant adolescents. Thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Very informative. Thank you very much for having yeah. me. Uh, we're going to have to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.